0: we're back with the something for nothing podcast it's steve and jerry and we've yes. got a special edition of the podcast today
1: we do before special we special guests
0: yes before we explain that you can find us on twitter at rush Fancast, instagram the rush cast email jerry the Rushcast, at gmail.com and where can you get our podcast jerry
1: well it's available on apple Stitcher. Podcast addict, Podcast addict, uh Podbean. And Spotify. And Spotify. And you can uh, go directly to our website at somethingfornothing.podbean.com. And just listen to it in your browser.
0: There you go. And today on the podcast, we are pleased to welcome the authors of the book that Rush fans everywhere have been waiting for for, for quite a long time. And it's out now. Am I correct? It is. It's out now. Rush, Wandering the Face of the Earth. The official touring history, 1968 to 2015. We're pleased to welcome Skip Daly and Eric Hansen. Welcome, guys.
2: Thank you. Hey, thank how are you, you doing? Thanks for having us on.
0: Hey, no problem at all. Why don't we uh, start by asking you guys how you became Rush fans? How did you discover Rush? What was your Rush moment that made you fans? Start with you, Skip.
2: Well, it's kind of funny because it wasn't like a distinct moment really at first. I mean, I remember so. I'm 48, right? I kind of was just a kid in the 70s, so missed the early days of the band. But when I was in grade school, probably around the time of 80, 81, you know, moving pictures when Rush became really huge, there was a guy in my elementary school who had older brothers. So, of course, they were into the band, and I would hang out with my friend and be at his house, and I think that's my first memory of hearing their music, but it was before I was young enough, I wasn't really into popular music yet. So, you know, I was kind of aware of it at that point and the name stuck in my head, but it wasn't really until I got into high school, probably around the mid to late 80s, that it really clicked for me. And, you know, a friend in school had like a hold your fire cassette in class with him one day. And I I remembered the name from the kid that I went to elementary school with who was crazy about him. So I borrowed the tape off the guy and went home and listened to it. And interestingly enough, I think it was the lyrics that really blew me away first. I remember kind of looking at it in school, being bored in class when this guy had the tape, and just kind of reading through the words and thinking, Jesus, like, nobody, this this is like rock music? Like, this guy writes like this? So it was the words that kind of resonated first, and then fell in love with the album, and then quickly went down the rabbit hole of having to have the whole catalog. And then the first tour I actually saw them on was uh, the Presto tour in 1990 here in uh, in Maryland. And ever since then, you know, it's kind of, obviously I, I listen to a lot of other stuff, but You know, I definitely went through that classic Rush Geek kind of obsessiveness, high school, college. And then, you know, since then, they've always been the go-to band. You know, we used to look forward to every year, the new album, the new tour. Yeah, so that's that's about it. Nothing totally uh, mind-blowing or unique there story-wise, but that's my story.
1: You had Gateway Brothers, I suppose.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it, it was always kind of, certainly in elementary school, it was a band that, we were kind of too young, but the older brothers were into it, and so you would learn of it that way.
0: And what about you, Eric? I had a friend
2: who um,
3: we used to exchange cassette tapes with, you know, very frequently during during summer vacations and whatnot. And uh, I was a big Led Zeppelin, Def Leppard, ACDC dc fan, Van Halen, whatnot. And he he would say, "Well, if you like Led Zeppelin, you got to listen to Rush. You like Rush, and this was probably." Right around 84, 85, which was the peak of the Rush technological sound, you know, the high-tech new wavy sound. Back then, I was a, I was all about uh, true old-style up and rock and roll. And I, at the time, thought that Rush was using uh, too much synthesized sounds, synth- synthesized drums, and so I resisted. And he got me hooked on moving pictures and permanent waves But it wasn't until we were listening, this is again, during the summer, we listened to the the world premiere of Force 10, and I remember listening to it and getting goosebumps listening to the song, just because I was listening to All New Rush for the first time, and it just really hit me. And that's the first album I got on release day, and kind of became a diehard fanatic from that album on.
1: Yeah, resistance is futile.
3: I just loved it. So... Yeah, Hold Your Fire was my favorite album. And uh, similar to Skip, my first tour was the Presto tour because Rush didn't come to my hometown on the Hold Your Fire tour. So I had to wait a few years.
1: Oh, wow. The one thing we've noticed from talking to a lot of Rush fans is that their first experience that really blew them away was seeing them live. And that's where this book is you know, just a chronicle of a working live band.
2: Yeah, I I think that's that's really true. I mean, the, you know, the the studio records are phenomenal, obviously, but I think that the the power of the live show was just incredible. I mean, you know, it's it's almost like been uh, over discussed at this point, right? But what three guys managed to pull off on stage, just in terms of the the m- amount of sound coming at you in the audience, as well as just how proficient they each were on their instruments, to say nothing of the fact that you know it was just great songwriting, and they really were you know, they did their own thing. It was such a unique sound, such a unique combination of three players and three personalities. And uh, yeah, I think that's true. I think they developed a a strong reputation as being a live band. And a lot of it was born out of, you know, as I'm sure, I mean, you guys are hardcore fans, so I'm not saying anything you, we all know this but I think that it goes back to their early years when they couldn't get on the radio because Getty's voice or they were too weird or whatever so they tore their asses off and because of that you know you can't do something that much and not get great at it so yeah I mean certainly for me I remember seeing the first time I saw them live I I was blown away
0: so what sparked the idea for this book for you guys
2: well Eric you want to take that one well yeah (laughs) it was uh... was, it's Eric's fault because of his website basically (laughs) so on my
3: website, I had a very detailed tour history where we tracked all the all the tour dates of the band going all the way back to the very beginning, even when those dates weren't completely known, you know, weren't written in stone.
1: Eric, uh, remind and everybody what the website is.
3: It's PowerWindows. dot net slash PowerWindows. That's and, been around fact,
1: for a while, right?
3: Since uh, 1998. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's one of those hobbies that I started that I just can't get away from.
1: It's like the AOL gears.
3: Uh, back So back in uh, 2010-ish, when Beyond the Light of Stage came out, Skip and I were chatting after watching the video, and we noticed that during the very beginning of that movie, there was all these uh, memorabilia shots were shown, which we later found out came out of Getty's personal collection, which had newspaper clippings. And ticket stubs for shows that nobody had seen before or even knew Rush had played. And so, of course, we start talking at that time about, hey, here's a shared interest that we both had of this touring history of this band. And we started talking, hey, we're not the only ones that have an interest like this. We knew that there was, you know, people around the world that share a common interest. So that was really the genesis of it.
2: Yeah. And, and we we had sort of uh, we had been in touch with each other prior to that, just from both being fans that kind of had, you know, I mean, among the harder core of the hardcore Rush fans, there was an online community. You know, we would always swap bootleg tapes or whatever. And, um, you know, there are there people that just kind of would gravitate together. And so Eric and I kind of knew each other before that. And we would occasionally I knew he had his tour dates listing and I would if I ever stumbled across information, I would send it to him. And just as a hobby, I think we both would kind of try to flesh out those dates when new information came to light. But it was really that film, as he said, that I think sparked it, that turned it into a, hey, we should really develop this. And, you know, for me at a fundamental level, it's kind of funny to think of, you know, nine years of effort and a book that's seven pounds and almost 500 pages. For me, it really was born out of a very simple thought of, Hey, there should, I would really like to own a book that is like this. There should be a book like this. Oh, there isn't one. Okay. Hey, why don't we make it <laughs> yeah. so, it's kind of the hard way to go about if you want to own a book and there isn't one, well, you know, what option do you have? You got to create it. So, exactly. um, you know, that's one of the most exciting things for me in the last couple of weeks is finally holding this thing in our hands, you know, where it's, it's now something real after nine years of effort, having a tangible object and being able to actually, Feels so good more than anything else that's you know i'm I'm happy just with that like goal achieved
1: you know right and hoping you don't drop it on your foot because it is a very big book
2: yeah, and if, yeah. It's, if it's not entertaining it makes a good doorstop <laughs> it's funny you say that because what i've been saying to people um my wife among them she's not a fan people have been like oh congrats you got this book it's great i'm gonna buy it and I've been trying to tell them, like, if you're a Rush fan, I think you'll love it. If you're not a Rush fan, it's probably going to be about as exciting as the phone book. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. Well, yeah, that's just about everything with Rush, though. If you're not a Rush fan, you're just not a Rush fan.
2: We 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 knew the audience, and we really went down the rabbit hole because we wanted to make it just brilliant for Rush fans. And I'm I'm being facetious. I mean our publisher will listen to this and probably kill me for that statement. I'm being largely facetious because I do think that there's stuff in there for everybody and you know my cousin is just a huge fan of rock and roll in general and I think music fans will enjoy it as well. But it it is packed chock-full of very detailed information that I think will really appeal to the hardest of hardcore rush fans.
1: Yeah, it definitely reads uh, like a travelogue at times.
2: Yeah. This version of it does
3: there were were other versions of the book yeah this is uh i guess you could say this is the third version the first version that we wrote was much more narrative and uh, when we presented it to the band for their approval uh, it came back that uh, they did not want a biography they wanted to be more of a tour date listing with a little bit of a narrative going from chapter to chapter. Which, so we had to, it was literally back to the drawing board and rewriting everything from scratch.
2: Man. Yeah, I, th- I think that was actually the second version of it because when we started out, it was more It was more kind of list-based. And then as we got deeper into it, we realized, you know, this would be more interesting if we wrap some narrative text around it. Um, so we started doing that. And then, yeah, it, there was some confusion a little bit because obviously we weren't interacting directly with the band. We pitched it to their management. And, and the original pitch was really, hey, we want to focus on have kind of the skeleton of the book be a detailed tour dates listing, but we want to have some meat on the bones where we interview crew and we get some cool stories and anecdotes and we flesh it out that way to make it interesting. And somehow that got translated apparently in the original pitch to the band of, they will, these guys want to do like, quote unquote, a book of lists, you know, data basically. And
1: mm-hmm. that's really,
2: that was never really our intent, but because it was communicated like that, you know, it ended up kind of coming back on us then later. And so, yeah, I, I, I think Eric's right. I think this is kind of the third version of of the thing. We did it one way, we tried it another way, and then we had to rewrite it back to the original way. But, yeah, I, I think it's better having gone through all that. Would I want to live that again? No. But <laughs> I, I, I do think we arrived at, at a really better place having gone through those iterations of it.
0: Now, you said Getty, Alex, and Neil had to sign off on the book. Now, did they help you? Did they contribute to the book in any way?
3: I would say the most we got was uh, access to rare photographs and clippings. They were largely not a part of it.
0: Oh, so the, um, you guys Anthem. were on your own then?
3: SRO Anthem, they did provide their history of tour dates. But what we found as we were digging into it is that they did not keep much record up until around 1977, 78 was when they started realizing, hey, they might be around for more than three or four years to start keeping <laughs> records. The history of the, the early days prior to 1978 are still largely unknown, very limited. We had to really hit the libraries to find all that
2: information. Yeah, they, they did provide... Um, I mean, they, they had listings going all the way back to, like, 74, but it's there's patches, and, and it definitely helped us. For one thing when when we got something from them, we knew we treated that as the gold source. Um, so if they had data, it was like, okay, this came directly from the band. So we're going to treat that as the gold source. Because as you're putting this, something like this together, inherently it's a bit of a puzzle, especially with stuff that's so many years ago. And there's all kinds of crazy stuff that happens where dates get scheduled and advertised, but then moved or canceled. So it really was like trying to do a big jigsaw puzzle. So they they did have, Data and they gave us tour data kind of all the way back to 74, but it was patchy in places. And there were things that we had to fact check and we had to to unravel and just kind of try to verify and re verify. Going back to the original question, it's true that the band themselves kind of didn't really participate, but the, the fact that we had their blessing and that we had the cooperation of their management team. It was just huge. Um, What Eric said is absolutely true in that we got access to rare photos and such, and we got access to the official tour data, but I think at least as important as that was the fact that with that blessing, it gave us access to interview, to do extensive interviews with crew members, both past and present. Um, Incredible interviews. Yeah, and, and those guys, you know, even the guys that had not worked for them for years and years and years, I guess because they're in that business, but also because of the loyalty that this band the the respect that this band um, has from anyone that's ever crossed paths and worked with them we found that even guys that hadn't worked for them in years and years and years they would want to see that we were authorized and it was okay to speak to us so the fact that we had that blessing from the band and their management really opened the door to capture some great interviews that led to a lot of the cool anecdotes and stories that are in there
1: yeah that's one of the things that struck me when I was reading it everybody says how great rush treated them opening bands yeah. are like they gave us a sound check <laughs> nobody they're like nobody gives a sound check so rush would do their sound check and then be like hey you guys now it's your turn to do a sound check and then most of them are like uh, well, I, i've never that's never happened to you before
2: well even yeah even oh, more, there's even more incredible than incredible stories from the crew as well i mean not just the other mm-hmm. bands but i'm sorry eric you were going to say something. yeah i was uh, going to say, say
3: beyond the opening bands almost Every single crew member that we interviewed would talk about the incredible relationship they had with the band and how generous the band always was. And, uh, I mean, even to the the point where up until their later tours, they would always try to offer the same level of um, uh, hotel rooms that the band was staying in. And the crew members had to explain to them, we would rather, because because they were on a fixed income through the tour for their per diem, they wanted to stay at a less expensive hotel. So they'd have more money for their food and their room and board and drinks and beverages and entertainment. And uh the band had a the band that was like, Well, okay, whatever you want, just let us know. It's just one of those things where they had such a great relationship with all their crew.
1: Yeah, there's one story in the in the book how the guys made sure to have dinner with the crew every night so that they would have a really good meal.
2: Yeah. Yeah. There there was that and the the other story that sticks in my mind and I don't remember who told me this, but it was I would have to dig back through, again, nine years, some stuff starts to blur together. But I distinctly remember a story as well from kind of the earlier years where, I guess, kind of toward the late 70s when things started to really take off. And they started to have promoters that would come along or whoever, people from the record label would come out and they would want to take the band out to dinner and treat the band to dinner. And the band would say, okay, well, the crew's coming too, right? And they would say, oh, well, wait a sec, you know, and the band would say, well, if it's not for all of us, it's not going to be for any of us. And they would actually refuse those outings if there wasn't enough for the crew to come along as well. You know, now any organization evolves over time, right? And I think this was back when it was a smaller contingent, but I think that that mentality speaks a lot as to how they treated their people. And even as the thing grew and you had suddenly a 40 person crew and you couldn't kind of do stuff like that. Realistically, I get the sense even from the interviews with guys from the later years that that mentality never really went away. I mean, they, you know, they were out there and they treated everybody with the utmost respect.
1: There's the, the integrity part that everybody loves about Russia's music. And that's just how they are. They want to make sure yeah. that everybody is treated the way they should be treated just as human beings.
2: Yeah, I mean and you're and and it's very insightful of you to pick up on that from the quotes. I think at one point when we were in the middle of doing a bunch of the interviews, I started noticing that as well. I was I was expecting it because I was a fan of the band and had kind of heard stories about how good they were as people, but it really hit home when we were in the middle of the interviews. And I think I was probably about halfway through conducting a bunch of interviews when I started noticing how strong that common thread was. And so I started pulling quotes out of the interviews, and I think I ended up with two or three pages of quotes from individual guys that i interviewed where it was just quotes about how great the band was. And I found that fascinating. And I got curious about it, so I put it together just in a document by itself, and it, it reads like, you know, it's almost like when you go to LinkedIn and you try to get people to say nice stuff about you.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> you know, it's like the endorsements. Yeah. It was pretty impressive just to see all that in one place.
1: Right, endorsement for being a, a, a good human being yeah <laughs> i thought it was cool uh all the
0: quotes you had from uh various artists who happened to see rush for the first time like tom Kiefer of cinderella saw rush i forget where it was for the first time and was just blown away and inspired him to become a musician where did you uh find those quotes and did you do those interviews or were those taken from other interviews you found elsewhere
2: we didn't really do those interviews but i mean i this is the point where i should really say and and i I think Eric will agree with me on this. I mean, there, there is no project this vast that is born in a vacuum or that is done by just a couple guys. I mean, the amount of help and support we had just from other fans out there like us and all the online communities and various people, and, and there are too many to name, but there were a lot of people that helped make this book what it was. It would not be you know, even a shadow of what it came out to be without all of the people that came out of the woodwork that helped us, that sent us stuff um, that contributed stories that had quotes from people like that. Uh, and such, you know, we obviously corroborated everything and, and checked it out, but those interviews that you see typically from other bands, some of them came from articles where it had been published somewhere, or it was that person being interviewed online somewhere or something like that. We would pull it and we would cite it. Uh, in some cases there were a couple fans that had spoken with those guys and interviewed them and, cataloged it and we would you know gave us permission to use that but yeah it, it is pretty interesting all the people that we tried to get a lot of that in there because we thought that would be fun you know and even Les claypool in his forward tells his infamous story of his first time seeing them when he threw up in the parking lot before even getting into the concert
3: <laughs> yeah, i think uh we even have
2: something in there it was bon jovi's first concert
3: as it
1: well. was yeah i have that pulled out i was like bon jovi's first concert was rush like, yeah okay so there is A lot of information here but it's it's presented you know chronologically obviously but there is just so much raw data and how does one start to collect that information are you going chronologically like did you walk into the offices and somebody gave you it gave you a bank box full of records and said here you go here's all the stuff
2: first you rewrite the book three times
3: (laughs) (laughs) first we started with the verification of the dates and then Going to a lot of the um, the published attendance records, all of that, a lot of that was available to us, but not all of it. Um, yeah, that, that's
1: an incredible amount of the granular nature of some of this information. Not only how many people were there, like to the to the number, not just a, a, a round estimate, but also for every venue when it opened, whatever, but when last time it was you know refurbished or something. I mean, it's incredible the amount of information you guys packed into this book. Yeah,
2: and again, a lot of that stuff that you name checked there specifically, there was there was there was another fan that really helped us a ton with that, with doing research, and he really spent a lot of time in the library and would just send us nuggets of information. Just because, again, you know, Rush fans are like that. They want things to be right. They want the detail, and they get excited about a project like this. And probably not totally unlike the motivation I expressed as being my own early on of just, I, I want to own a great book. I, I want this book <laughs> you know, on my shelf as a fan. I want to be able to pick it up and leaf through it. So we definitely had people helping with fleshing out the details around that um, in terms of how we went about it. I don't know, Eric, if you agree with this, but my sense is that I think what we did, thinking back to kind of the early days of working on this, is you really just start doing it and you kind of get down a skeleton of what you're doing. And I think it started with, well, what's the information on Eric's site? There's kind of our original listing because that had all been, you know, Eric, to his credit, had built that site over the course of years and other fans had contributed to that. So, you've kind of had that as a starting point, and we turned that into a listing. And then over the course of nine years, it really is never ending. I mean, you're constantly fleshing it out, and new information comes to light. And then oh, as yeah. you flesh it out more, you start to be cognizant of, well, now we have all these ticket prices that we got from somewhere. So, let's try to find <laughs> the ones that are missing. And you flesh it out more. And there are sources for some of the stuff you could find. Like, I think I subscribed at one point to, is um, it uh, Polestar that tracks attendance numbers? So I paid a fee to get access to their official data. SRO had some of the data. So you're piecing it together from multiple sources um, and just iteratively building it like that. And it truly does never end. I mean, there was literally a new date that surfaced um, from like 1977 that came to light that one of the John Petuto who runs the Cygnus X1 site. The, all those guys would feed us information, too, and, and help us just, hey, this came this information came my way. Can you use it? Um, and there was a date that came to light just, I think, at at the beginning of August, and I quickly tried to get it to the publisher, and (laughs) just missed the cutoff. Uh So, you know, the next printing of the book will have that in there, so it really, truly never ends. Look for Volume 2 coming soon.
0: (laughs) One reason I think that all Rush fans will want to have this book on their coffee table is most Rush fans, I would say, have been to 20, 30 shows, and just to be able to go back And find the shows that you attended and find those little nuggets that you didn't know. For instance, Jerry and I, the first show we saw was Power Windows Tour, March 31st, 1986. And when I opened the book, that's the first thing I went to. And it turned out that two of the songs from that show ended up on a show of fans. And I had no idea. And I just thought that was a cool thing. Yeah. And uh, for Rush fans to be able to go back and, and go to the shows that they attended and see all the cool things about that that they may have forgotten or didn't know, I think it's a great thing.
3: And we did try to include little nuggets of unique shows when we learned about them. Unique in that there might have been a, a train wreck, as Rush has been known to call it, their little technological snafus, or when a, a, a track was done incorrectly or whatnot, a lyric might have been sung wrong. We included any any little nuggets that we were aware of, just to try to add a little more meat to the bones.
1: Yeah, I did the same thing. I, I went through the book and immediately looked at the one, the concert that I had gone to, and... There was one it was I think it was the Time Machine Tour when we saw them at Jones Beach. There's a little story in there about how two women came out to I don't know, feed the quarters into the whatever, the chicken rotisserie or something like that. And one of the women didn't want to leave the stage and Getty was mad at her. And I remember I'm like, I
2: remember that. Yeah, and a little of that story, it's funny you say that because I kinda that sticks in my head for some reason and it's making me think of just all the sources that we kind of pulled through to be able to sort of put all that disparate information together in one place in the book. And I think that story might've actually been from one of Neil's books. It was probably like maybe the roadshow book or now it would have been, would have been later if it was the time machine tour, but you know, the stuff he's published in his various books, there's stories in there about touring and about specific dates. And we would even comb through that and just, you know, you put, put all these disparate sources together, you know, a lot of, a lot of information is out there, but I think there's value. I mean, it's nice of you guys to say that you're enjoying that aspect of it because it's kind of, it's a nice affirmation of something I always suspected was that there's a certain inherent value in just pulling all of that information together and having it kind of in one place because it makes it fun to look through. You look through and you've got all this detail about whatever thing you want to look up and it's all there together.
0: Is there any one particular story that stands out for you guys, something that you never heard before and were just like, wow, I can't believe that that happened?
3: How uh, about Nicholas Cage is a closet rush fan that likes to s- he went to every concert abido <laughs> wearing wearing disguises
0: <laughs> disguises really? I didn't see yeah, that he part. Would, he would wear disguises. you'll get to it later <laughs> uh, he he didn't want to be recognized, i guess
3: yeah, he wouldn't be recognized, and he would wear like uh i just remember one the way I picture in my mind he's wearing a cowboy hat and a long really long haired wig oh wow and uh yeah, and then uh he was recognized in that costume as he went backstage. When he took the costume off, that's when they figured out, oh, that was Nicholas Cage the whole time.
1: <laughs> I guess he spared no expense with, with some long hair and a cowboy hat.
3: We had this one story that I don't think it all made it into the book. There was the fan, Skip, try to remind me of this, it was the fan that made it to his first Rush show in Czechoslovakia when they
2: played there. Oh, and, yeah, I think I do remember that. And it was something with uh, maybe Brad Maddox, the uh, front of house sound guy, uh, he came up to him, and and the guy was very interested in sound engineering, and I think Brad ended up spending a lot of time talking to him or something like that. If that's the if I'm thinking of the right story, yeah, something he, like that. he could barely speak English, but he was a Rush fan. Well, I'll tell You, you watched the whole show
3: from the, from the soundboard.
2: <laughs> the story that really sticks in my mind, I mean, there are a bunch, so I, I don't know that I could pick one, but the one that really sticks in my mind, I guess I have to set this up a little bit. By, I'll preface it by saying that, personally, the, the, the area of the book that I found, that I got deepest into, that I found the most interesting was the really, really early years, because I kind of feel like the pre-1974 stuff was just only very sparsely documented. And I just always found, With any band I'm into, I find their formative years fascinating because I'm an amateur musician and anybody that's an amateur musician, you spend a lot of time banging around in a garage and how many of those bands actually go somewhere? So the bands that actually go somewhere, I find their formative years just fascinating, how they went from being the crappy little high school band and stuck with it and developed it. And, you know, with Rush, they went from being a garage band playing high schools and bars to being such a huge band, you know, in a fairly like over the course of ten years or so, you think about where they went from and where they ended up. So the formative years always attracted me. And I remember early on when we were talking to Peggy ciccone at SRO Anthem, she actually was telling us, don't even try for those years because there's just no records, nobody knows. But we were stubborn and and I, you know, was interested in it. So we found ways to tease out a lot of information about that stuff and got creative and even went to places that I don't think anybody looked before, like the musician pensions fund, right? Because those guys joined a union. So they had some records of some early bar dates and things like that. So the early years were interesting to me. And as we started fleshing out that first chapter, which, by the way, in the original version of the book was a lot longer. I mean, there's some great stories that unfortunately, for now anyway, are kind of on the cutting room floor and didn't make it in. But as we started interviewing some of those guys from the early days, like including Bill Rutsey, uh, John Rutsey's brother, and the guy who gave the band its name, uh, Lindy Young, Ian Grandy, Hal Grenson, all these guys that were around in those early days, just some great stories would come out because those guys were there at such an early point before anybody was famous or anything was big. And the story that really stuck in my head was one that Bill Rutsey told Eric and I about when uh, from John's later years because john of course passed away in 2008 and it was quite moving talking with bill actually and we've we've become quite good friends and are still in touch and he's uh, he's just a great guy and when he would talk about his brother it, it was very moving and he was pleased that people were interested in john's contributions to the band from those early years and he told us this great story about probably in the, the mid-2000s you know a few years before john passed away and they were all at the Rutsey house, you know, family holiday gathering. And it was somebody's, I remember it was Bill's daughter or somebody had their boyfriend at the house and his friends were there and they were all musicians. And she introduced them to her uncle, John. And they started laughing and they were like, ha, ah, John, John Rutsey, ha, ah, you're just the same name as the famous drummer or whatever. And she just kind of leaned over and whispered to him and said, that is him. <laughs> and, and Bill's telling the story and said their eyes just got huge and the rest of the night they were hanging out with John and they were trying to play in demos and, and said John was just like so sweet to him and just so encouraging and spent a ton of time talking to him. But it was, it was really quite moving hearing Bill tell stories like that about his brother. And, and for me anyway, it made the whole thing something else rather than just writing a book about a band. I liked It really humanized everything. Um, so I, I'm grateful for those those relationships and those experiences from, you know, I feel like I really made friends through the course of working on this, which was you know, something I wasn't expecting as a reward of the project.
1: The early years are interesting because I didn't know I mean, obviously they were very young and they were trying out different things, but there was at one time a fourth member of the band on guitar Yeah, a couple awesome. times actually Yeah, that, that's what I found that amazing, I just, I didn't know that stuff, especially 19... 19- sixty eight to nineteen seventy four i think that's the first that's the first part of the book because even then they played a lot of gigs even back then
2: they were in the bars five nights a week you know from like nineteen seventy two to nineteen seventy four it was just it was an insane schedule and that was all fairly local to Ontario but yeah they were out there playing bars high schools four or five six nights a week
1: yeah and when you you pay attention to the actual dates you get a sense of how many dates they would play in a row and how far apart these places were. I mean, these, these tours were punishing.
2: Yeah, definitely. I I don't know. I don't know how you do that schedule that they did. I mean, if you look at some of the dates, I, I think what you're talking about there, I remember looking at like when we were getting into putting the date listing together for like the Farewell to Kings tour and around that era, I think you see like, you know, 17 one nighters in a row somewhere in there. And it's just, I can't imagine, you know, doing that. And and you're driving hundreds of miles in between. Because people don't think about the dead time when a band is on the road, right? They think about the two hours of the show. And uh, I remember Brent Carpenter, their monitor engineer from the more recent years, said to me once, he's like, these guys don't pay me for the two hours of the show. They pay me for the other 22 hours of the day. You know, when I'm out there traveling or on the road and not being home.
0: Is there one thing you guys wanted to include in the book but weren't able to find or acquire? Any, any one tidbit of information or a piece of memorabilia
3: yeah skip the holy grail show from um there's there's an advertisement in uh different stages
0: yeah
2: there's an ad where they played at what was it seneca college i think eric with crowbar opening for crowbar and it was from very early on i think we dated it back to where it would have been sometime around late 1971 or early 1972 and there's there's a partial if you if you look in the, the liner notes of different stages where it's got that big collage of memorabilia that Andrew McNaughton put together from, from, a,
3: Get, from Getty's memorabilia.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And there's like there's up. So there's a partial scan of like, I guess, what's either a ticket or a poster or handbill or something. Mm-hmm. And you could see the ad for this show, but there's no date. You can't see the date because it's like cut off. And we were never able to find that. And the reason I became really obsessed with trying to find that, but never did, was we were also, you mentioned the, the second guitarist in the band. So there were actually a couple guys that were in the band briefly early on. There was Lindy Young, who was in the band in the really early days for a brief time as a keyboard player and singer. And he ended up becoming Getty's brother-in-law later on when Getty married Lindy's sister. But then later, a couple years later, there was a guy named Mitch Bossy. He goes by Mike these days, Mike Bossy, who was the second guitarist in the band for maybe like six months or so. And it was always reported that he was in the band from February of 1971 until the summer of 1971. And as we started working on piecing together those early years, I, I guess I'm really geeking out here and kind of going deep down the rabbit hole. with
0: you guys. <laughs> no, it's um, fine. We're, we're geeks. We're, we're into it.
2: Yeah. So, so he was, he was always reported as being in the band for like the early part of 71. And as we started piecing together those early chapters, and then we had the chance to interview him. Um, I spoke with him several times and he had some great stories. His stuff wasn't adding up because the age to the drinking age in Ontario in the middle of 1971 got lowered from 21 to 18. And that was when Rush really started playing the bars. Before then, they hadn't been in the bars because they couldn't get into them. So we found the date, actually, the actual date that the drinking age got lowered, and it was like the end of July 71. And when I spoke to Mitch and interviewed him, he starts telling me these stories about, and, and I mean, very vivid memories of playing like some of the bars with the band. So that got me thinking like, wow, you must have played, you must have been in the band later than that. So it must have been late 71 to early 72. And then we started looking at at Toronto, local Toronto newspapers and found some bar listings and there were pictures of the band as a four piece from like early 72. And the reason I really became obsessed with trying to find the date of that Crowbar gig is that's one of the gigs that Mitch remembered playing. So he was in the band when they did that. So that kind of bracketed the date of it. And if we'd ever been able to find that date, it just would have further corroborated that we indeed had the right dates for when Mitch was in the band, which goes against what had always been reported previously as being about a year earlier than I think he actually was in the band. And that's way more information than you wanted.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, no, it's exactly the information that we want. I mean, this, this book has just a lot of information like that. So Rush is touring nonstop, basically, as much as they can, 68 through, I guess, the Permanent Waves tour. And in the opening chapter of the Permanent Waves tour, you say, quite astonishingly, this was the first Rush tour that actually turned a profit. Mm-hmm. That's, that's incredible. Yeah. I mean, how did they, they were doing this simply to gain the fans for the future? I think
2: it was more, they had to, because they weren't getting a ton of radio play back then. So it was kind of the only avenue was to get out there and play their asses off. And they believed in the records they were putting out. And if the radio is not going to play the records, how are they going to promote them? And I think also that those, those guys believed that this is what bands do, real bands. They tour and they play live. So I think for all those reasons, they were just out there hitting it as hard as I can and I, as hard as they can. And, and I think they were hungry and they wanted to get better and they wanted to make it. And that was kind of what they did. The finances of it, I, it's interesting you point that out because I found that interesting too. Um, and I think it's probably a combination of just as they were going along. Every tour, they were trying to present a better show to the fans. They were trying to grow it and give the fans more. And so I think all the money, whatever money there was, they would put back into the show and put back into developing the show. And they would have a bigger crew each time and they would expand the light show each time. And and that stuff all costs money. I mean, when they're out there on the road, there's such an overhead in keeping a show like that on the road. So I think that they were patient and they were trying to reinvest, as it were, each time and keep presenting a better show to the fans every time they would come back
1: around. Yeah, there's definitely a sense that they love their fans. They, they're they doing these shows for the fans. They really appreciate uh, us hardcore fans, I think.
3: And keep in mind, ticket prices were a little bit cheaper back then. <laughs> That's true.
0: <laughs> that is right. true. Uh, yeah. Now you, you guys know everything about every Rush show now after doing this book. What's one show that each of you wish you had attended but didn't? Oh wow, great question,
2: <laughs> Eric. Uh, how about? How do we never think to ask each other that? I'm curious what you're going to say now.
0: <laughs> the,
3: the, the final show, August first, 2015. That was actually my anniversary.
0: Oh wow! And
3: um, I want—I was—I wanted to go <laughs> talk to my wife
0: oh, about man. it.
3: Said, "Babe, this is going to be their final tour." She says, "You've been—you've been saying that for the last five years." Didn't go. I said, you know, I could fly out to LA, get to a rush show, go to Disneyland, be a great weekend. Ended up missing it. And like now, after the fact, she tells me, We should have gone to that show.
0: Oh man.
3: <laughs> and and I uh, actually they they printed up a promotional or not a promotional, uh, uh, you know, a special poster for it and they sold it at the show. You can only buy it at that show. And a fellow fan bought, bought me one of those. And I actually have that framed in my bedroom. So she gets to see it every night. August uh-huh. 1st, 2015 poster.
1: And that reminds me of a story in the book about the the kid who uh, bailed on his junior prom date to go to a rush show. And she sued him for $75 or something like that.
0: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and what about you, Skip? Oh, man, I, I don't. I'm
2: sitting here thinking about it as as Eric was answering, and I don't think I could give you one, but I could quickly give you four.
0: Okay, that? four. That's good. Four quickly.
2: I'm going to first of all say the same one Eric said, because I missed the final show, and who wouldn't have wanted to be at the final show, right? The other one that comes to mind is the first show ever at the coffin. I can't imagine what that would have been like. Again, just being fascinated with the formative years, it'd be interesting to see, this little band playing to 30 people in a room because I don't know, but I suspect that probably even way back then there was a little bit of a spark of something and it was probably pretty interesting to see. Um, you know, the first time Getty and Alex played together at a gig like that, that must've been pretty interesting. The third one would have been the first show on the vapor trails tour in Hartford, Connecticut because that was after Neil's tragedies, and none of us knew whether there would be a rush anymore. And I remember just hearing from people that were at that show just how emotional it was for both the audience and the band for them to take the stage again after getting through that dark period, and, and you know nobody knew it would happen again. So I'm still bummed that I missed that one. I saw them about a week after that, but I missed the, the big return.
1: There are some great quotes from the band about that specific moment when they first started playing.
2: Yeah, very, very powerful show by all accounts. And then yeah. the last one I would pick would be Massey Hall at the end of the Caress of Steel tour, just because that tour was a bit of a. I have a fondness for that record just because it was so weird and arty. And I, the fact that it was kind of not a successful tour for them, but they were playing stuff probably live that they never played again, you know, like much of that record. Um, the weird songs like the Necromancer and stuff. and I think it would have been pretty interesting to catch a show on that tour as well when they were really kind of at a low point.
0: Now, I read that that was the only show that they played The Fountain of Lemneth in its entirety. Is that true? No, I that don't particular show?
2: That. No, and, and I, I will spare you for this, for this time the really long story about that, but I know where that rumor came from. Uh, and it was, and it was it was debunked later on, but unfortunately it still lives on online and people spread it around. Um, There was a set list for that, a a rumored set list for that show that got passed around. And really, there was no corroboration for it. There were a couple of old crew guys, both Ian as well as Skip Gildersleeve, before he passed away, who would tell me that they couldn't remember for sure because it was all a blur, but neither of them remembers side two of that record ever really having been played live. Now, there are rumors from some fans, and I think we've included one of these stories in there just because, who knows? There were some rumors. There was one fan that caught the Atlanta gigs on that tour that squares up and down that they played some of it. But, you know, I I don't think... I I highly doubt that there was ever a time where they played a song once and only once. But the jury's out as to whether they ever played that song at all. I I don't know.
0: Well, uh, all four of us didn't get to see it, that's for sure.
1: (laughs) No, right, right. You know, it's interesting you guys would like to be at the, the last show because, you know, the intro... By Les Claypool is is a great story, but so is the you know the epilogue by uh, Stuart Copeland. I guess yeah. he's, he's a huge Rush fan. I guess he wasn't. The police weren't uh, the biggest fans of Rush in the beginning, but obviously he's great friends with Neil now.
3: He's got a bigger gong than Neil. He does. <laughs> yeah, right.
1: But but the book ends with a great line written by Stuart. It says, "At the last Rush concert at the Forum, they made it darned clear." that it would be the final show but i'm writing this in present tense because it's harder to kill a band like rush than the rush guys think and that's that's exactly the kind of that's exactly the kind of attitude that that you know spurred this book rush just is never will never cease to be um endlessly entertaining for all of us fans
2: yeah well you know i i remember thinking when um you know when they were calling it quits and it it was pretty apparent i think i mean speaking for myself i remember thinking after that 2015 tour, well, you know, maybe they'll record another album and then maybe they'll just do like a run of a short run of shows somewhere or something like that. I, I wasn't totally convinced it was completely over, but or within maybe, a year a or Las so, Vegas residency, something like, yeah. So, or, or, you know, they could have done like a Billy Joel type thing. Like we're going to do a week of dates at Madison Square gardens, then a week of dates on the West coast or something like that. But I think after about within a year or so, it became pretty obvious that they were really done. And I remember thinking, you know, there's that old quote about don't be sad that it's over, smile because it happened. You know, it was quite a ride for, for, you know, to have your favorite band last that long, go so strong, and, and kind of never really sell out or never let you down. And, and I remember thinking the way they ended, as much as it's sad that it's over and I miss them every year and I miss the albums of the tours and just looking forward to that stuff. The way they ended was really just, it couldn't have been better. I mean, you know, nobody nobody had health issues where they, they got sick or, God forbid, passed away. Um, there was never any nasty breakup where they argued with each other and it turned ugly. There was none of that. It just, they got to a point where, you know, age and we want to go out on top. And, uh, you know, they, they ended the way that I would have hoped they would have ended.
0: Well, I know uh, we speak for all Rush fans in thanking you for putting all the effort that you guys put into this book. The name of the book is Rush, Wandering the Face of the Earth, The Official Touring History, 1968 to 2015. Skip Daly and Eric Hansen. thanks so much for being with us today. We really appreciate it.
2: Thank you, guys. Yeah, thanks a lot for having us on. We really appreciate it, and glad you enjoy it.
0: Yeah, it's great. Thanks. Well, that was a really interesting interview, Jar. I think so. Wandering the face of the earth, and uh, you've got to have this book on your coffee table right next to Getty's big, beautiful book of bass. That's
1: right. That's where I'm going to put it. I had them next to each other the other day. They're great books, both of them.
0: Yeah, amazing. Anything about the book that we we forgot to mention that we we should have? You think?
1: Yeah, there's a lot of reviews from like local newspapers and about you know how the concerts went. And there's an extraordinary number of reviews that negatively mention Getty's voice, and they, the, the, the authors of these, these reviews just go out of their way to describe Getty's voice as like the worst thing they've ever heard.
0: Well, I guess the reviewers that were seeing Rush for the first time, that's probably the one thing that jumps out at you, I guess, is Getty's
1: voice. I guess, But the way they describe them, there's so many like, you know, strangling weasels and (laughs) it's like, where? It doesn't sound like that at all. It makes me think that maybe these these, uh, rock critics spend their time (laughs) strangling small animals.
0: Or they're just not very good rock critics and couldn't come up with anything better to write. That's true. So they just uh, grabbed that and decided to throw some weasel imagery in. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So uh, it's a great book. If you're a Rush fan, which you are because you're listening to this podcast, this is a must-have book. Uh, we highly recommend it. Um, you can follow us at RushFanCast Instagram, The Rush Cast, and email Jerry, TheRushCast at gmail.com. As always, thanks for listening. We appreciate it. Next time on The Rush FanCast? Yes. Vapor Trails.
1: Oh, yes, Vapor Trails. It's
0: going to be a downer.
1: Yeah, it's, it's a heavy album. It deals with some some very, very heavy themes.
0: Yes. So until next time, you have a quote for me, Jer.
1: I do. And it's from the book, Wandering the Face of the Earth. Please. This is a quote from Neil. Okay. At dinner before the fourth or fifth show, Getty, Alex, and I were talking about how the shows were going. And Getty said, I don't think we've peaked yet. That was yeah. 2010. Yeah. No, they- they, I don't think they, they, they've never peaked. They just get better and better. I guess that is peaking.
0: I, I think the peak was the last show. We were just talking about it with Skip and Eric. I don't the know. The last when, show when I, was the peak. When I think They of, went
1: out on top, Jer. They did go out on top. But when I think of, a, of something peaking, I'm thinking that after that, they got worse. No, well, here's the thing. And be, the, They never got they worse. Kept,
0: they kept going up, 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 up to the peak. Then they stopped. That's right, and that's it. They didn't go down. It's just nope. they're at they're right now. They're at the peak. That's right. They left at the peak.
1: That's right, and we're grateful for it.
0: We certainly are. And until next time, Steve and Jerry, the Rush fan Cast, something for nothing. We'll talk to you soon. All right, bye.